Well, amen. So glad you're with us. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. And if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll put that on the screen for you. And I'd love to gift you with a copy of the scriptures if that's something that you would like. It would be a joy for us to be able to do that. Uh, we are going through a series right now called Does Jesus Work? It's going to be a short series. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine what our answer to that question is. <laughs> Yes, uh, we do think Jesus works, but that's a, that's a position that must be defended. We live in a world where things are not uniform. Lots of people who are very intelligent and very well-spoken and living very attractive lives believe things that are wildly different from one another. It's a contested landscape that we grow up in, so it's not an assumption that we can make. We need to be able to understand it, and if we're going to live it, we have to believe it. So where does it come from? The conviction that Jesus does work. Uh, as I'm going through and prepping for this week, I had the experience of preaching at uh, the local Christian school, ICS. And it was an honor to be allowed to go and talk at their chapel. They've got one every week, so they got to fill that pulpit every week. And they let me do it uh, this week. And honestly, it was an anxiety-producing thing for me. I don't do a great job with Teenagers, for some reason, uh, I've worn different hats at different stages in ministry, and that was an, an area I never really was able to crack very well. Part of the reason, um, when you speak to groups of people, generally you try to just plow through. But it's nice if the people have some level of like personality in their face as they're listening to you. You don't have to like, you know, like my mother. You, you can just be... <laughs> Vaguely encouraging. You don't have to be intensely encouraging. Just be alive, right? For some reason, from the age of like 13 to 18, people just develop this like scoff, like this face of scorn, and they can tear you apart. I don't care what they think about me until they look at me, and then it's like, oh, maybe I do need to be cooler. Like, I don't know how to... Anyway, it, it, it creates a lot of anxiety. So I go to preach to them, and I'm thinking about what do they need to hear, and I'm remembering the way that they make me feel and the way that I felt when I was in high school. It's just a lot of anxiety about who am I? Uh, how, how do I fit in in this culture, in this group, with this group of people? Am I uh, an intelligent person, a good person, an okay person? Do I have value? And how does that value interplay with other people and, and and how do I walk into a group and be accepted? And I'm thinking about that while prepping that morning, Wednesday morning, at a Starbucks that was very close to the chapel. The chapel service was at like 11. I'm there about 10 o'clock. And any coffee shop in the city, at about 10 o'clock, there's a group of people there. And I spend a lot of my time reading and writing, and I can do that in one place, or I can kind of move it around a little bit. So I go to a lot of these different coffee shops, and... Any of these coffee shops at about 10 o'clock in the morning, there's a group of very cool retired people that show up. <laughs> now, the fact that you're laughing at cool and retired is you. I didn't do that. That's on you and your own uh, judgmentalism. But these people are cool. They're very well-groomed. They're very well-dressed. They've got nicer cars than you do. And they show up at Starbucks at 10 because it's the only thing on the agenda for the day. And they gather together. I don't know that they knew each other outside of these places, but they just gather as cool retired people at Starbucks. And I watched 
this interplay between these three cool retired people and then a fourth one. And the fourth one was approaching the group and you could tell that he was not as cool as the other cool retired people. He was a little dowdy. He didn't have as nice a clothes. And he walked up without the air of, I belong here, that the other retired people have. And wouldn't you know, as he walked up to the group, they stood up, they smiled at him, and then they left. And he was sitting there by himself. Now, I don't know if you saw Mean Girls, (laughs) but apparently it never goes away. Even when you get to a place of like, I've won. I'm in the golden age of my life. This is the victory lap. Even then, you're asking yourself that question. How do I fit in in this group? Am I approachable? Am I valuable? Am I acceptable? We usually have a certain insecurity that forces us, tempts us into presenting ourselves in just a certain way. We've only got certain angles and we try to polish those angles as well as we can and then present those angles and only those angles in the different social situations we're in. You can make fun of younger people for the selfie and the only time that it's really, really funny is if you see somebody in public taking a selfie of themselves. Because you watch them go through several different faces as they try to make the perfect face. And when you see the picture, it's like, oh, that's a cute picture. But when you watch them taking the picture, you see just how like fake it is as they try to produce that perfect look. And that's what we're all doing a lot of the time. It's weird to think, but I do think it's definitely certainly true in my life. Maybe it's true in your life that... A good deal of your personality even is a result of your attempt to fit in and to hide your insecurity, to highlight your best angles. Is that what God has made us for? Or is there maybe a different way, a better way? Last week when we started this series, we talked about Jesus' big conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, where he gives this illustration of two foundations for you to build your life upon. There's either the foundation of his word, which is a foundation of stone, upon which, if you build your house, you can withstand the storm. The storm, capital S, but also the storms, the death, yes, but also just life. Or you can build your life on anything else. And if anything else is the core foundation of who you are, then when the storms come, according to Jesus, your house will fall. And that's his system. This isn't my words, it's his. He said, it's my way or no way. Therefore, we have to ask, is what he said really truly true? And if we're going to ask that, we've got to ask it about specific big questions. And the one we're going to focus on today is, is, is who am I? What's my identity? Look with me at 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4. In this passage, Paul, who is one of the guys that's helped to start different churches, different places, right after Jesus' life and ministry, goes around, starts this church, comes back. Uh, at some point, he's writing a letter to them because he's heard about what's going on with them. This church has had some messy stuff going on. And they're dividing themselves around different leaders. And Paul is trying to then address for them how they should see these leaders. 
And while that's the, the kind of specific context, the broader context is how we should define ourselves at all. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, speaking of the different leaders within this church, but we can again just place ourselves in this us. This is the, the way in which a Christian person, and you may be a Christian, you may not be a Christian this morning, but this is the way in which a Christian person is supposed to be regarded or regard themselves. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. That sounds very modern, doesn't it? Well, he's talking about himself, he's talking about whether or not he's faithful. As a steward of the mysteries of God. And then he says, and I don't care what you think about me as a steward of these mysteries. I will I refuse to be judged by you. Very modern sentence. But then he goes much further than the modern when he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Well, what's left? I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby innocent, acquitted, it is the Lord who judges me. So, what he does is he starts off with a couple of wrong foundations for your identity. A couple of sandy foundations. If you build your house on, it's going to fall. Before he gets to the rock answer. The word of Christ answer for who God says you are. So let's start with the wrong, let's go to the right, and then let's talk about the results of building your house on that stone foundation. The first of the wrong answers that Paul puts forward is when you base yourself, your identity, on your actions. The whole context of this, he begins with, now I'm a steward of these mysteries, and a steward must be faithful, but I'm not going to be judged based on even my faithfulness. Paul is saying he's not going to be judged, first and foremost, even by his actions. Take a second to realize how radical that is, because in our culture, that's pretty much all we use. You mostly self-define by what you do. You meet somebody in the hallway, you're going to ask them, hi, what's your name? They tell you, and the first question you're going to ask after that is... Usually I don't ask for crowd participation, so it's okay that you didn't like jump on that one. <laughs> but I think he would unanimously say, well, what do you do? And you say that because we need that. You need that as the grounding for this person. How do I interact with you? Are you a smart person or a, a dumb person or a hardworking person or a poor person or a what? You have a very judgmental attitude about other people based on what they do, and that's the first thing we usually ask because you want to put them in a box based on what they do. They say doctor, and you go, oh. Because in your head, you're imagining all the things that go with what it is to be a doctor. You've given them an identity based on their actions. Within a church, it goes even further because we usually identify within a church, you're going through in your own kind of personal insecurity as you're walking through here, who am I based on your moral activity? You will judge yourself or allow yourself to be judged based on some standard of obedience to God. 
As you walk into a church, you're, you're either going to associate with that church's idea of those standards or not. You're evaluating yourself uh, on some other standard. But there's a law by which you have said, I'm a good person or I'm a bad person. But that can't work. Whether it's just your vocation or it's some sort of moral standard of excellence, you will always be chasing a moving target. Let's take, for example, the moral argument. Let's pretend that you say, I'm a good person, and it's only because of one thing. Because I never lie. If we had a God's eye view into your life and into your heart, would it be true that you never lie? Whatever standard you set for yourself, you would immediately start to find that there are shades wherein you're redefining the word lie to accommodate the way that you talk to other people. Do you like this shirt? Yeah. Okay, wait a minute. You said you never lie. Never? It's just a shirt. Honesty would just be to say, I have absolutely no reaction to your shirt. <laughs> it's just a shirt on a man. It's fine. It's not great, it's just a shirt. I had no thought about it until you forced me to give you some sort of a response. Now, I never lie? You start moving from there to more and more difficult situations wherein you never lie, and you find that your definition of lie moves because you need to feel like a good person. Your definition will move in order to facilitate the way that you want to live. Is that really a firm foundation? Or is it a fluid foundation? We find that in the New Testament there are people who didn't define themselves by one standard. They had hundreds. They're called the Pharisees. They had the Old Testament law and they expanded upon it. They had hundreds of rules. And based on those hundreds of rules, they said that they were good people. Well, here's the other side of it. Whether you fail and have to move your line... Or you succeed. If you succeed on a works-based understanding of who you are, you then actually come out worse. Because now, on the inside, you're proud. So you look at other people and judge them for not being as good as you. Or you get around the other Pharisees and you're constantly trying to put yourself in the right pecking order. And you're killing yourself to figure out how to get a little bit higher. Have you ever been around people like that? It's part of what takes place within religion when religion is how well do I conform to a standard, to a law. And I hope you'll notice that I'm putting that under the context, the heading of wrong answers. Paul rejects that as a way to understand who you are. He also, though, rejects a social understanding, and this we understand. A very small thing that I should judge by you or by any human court. You don't get to judge me. In our context, our culture, we agree with that totally. I get to set who I am and whether or not I'm good. And you, culture, privilege, don't get to decide. I do. Paul is saying you cannot define yourself socially because social is even more fluid and watery than just personal. Think about that for a second. 
if you try to be right in the center of what the culture said is good and right and true in 1950, would you be the same person as the person who is doing exactly what the culture says is good and right and true in 1960, or 1970, or 1980, or today? In the course of the lifetime of some of those cool retired people, you would have changed drastically and done things that were opposed to each other because one time this was right and another time this thing that was the opposite is right. Do you see how fluid that is? Paul's saying that is no appropriate foundation for the self. But then he goes way further than we do in our culture and he says, I do not even judge myself. What do we do with that? He is saying the opposite of our culture. See, our culture, whether it's the, the, um, just sort of the prevailing winds or it's just nice people trying to be nice about the fact that everybody disagrees with other people, there's an idea out there that there's no really true answer. And because of that, we're all free to have our different answers. And so you can't judge yourself because you create your own meaning. And one modern writer, a very influential guy, said it this way. He said, the knowledge that nothing matters, meaning there is no really true true, while accurate, which is a weird thing to say, but he's saying he actually believes that there's nothing. It's his personal belief that there is no real meaning in the universe. That knowledge, while true, gets you nowhere. The planet is dying. The sun is exploding. The universe is cooling. Nothing is going to matter. The further back you pull, the more that truth will endure. But when you zoom in on earth, zoom in on a family, into a human brain and childhood and experiences, you see all these things that, and he says matter, but really I think to be consistent he would say, seem to matter. We have this fleeting chance to participate in an illusion called, I love my girlfriend, I love my dog. How's that not better? Knowing the truth, which is that nothing matters, can actually save you in those moments. Once you get past the terrifying threshold of accepting that nothing matters and that it's all going to go away, then every place is the center of the universe by pretend. Every moment is the most important moment because I've declared it so. And everything is the meaning of life because I decide. I'm holding this quote forward because I think it is one of the most eloquent and winsome ways to say what a lot of people think. And maybe some of you think today. But if you base yourself on what you say, it's going to be flowing around all of the time. That's what he's describing there. He's saying that you're going to then have to try and make whatever your current experience is as a meaningful experience by dis-meaningful. And yet Paul says, no. I don't get to determine my own meaning because I am from somewhere. There is not a impersonal force over the universe but a personal one one who has spoken and one who gets to decide one who gets to judge that's why he finishes up that passage by saying for I'm not aware of anything against myself but I'm not innocent it's the Lord who judges me 
So apart from these shifting sands, there is a rock which is God saying of who you are. It is a given identity. Meaning, you can have a shifting answer where you say, I will determine who I am based on my works or my culture or just by raw self-decision. Or I can receive who I am from something outside of myself being God. Now, this is what Paul says is the right answer. This is what Jesus identifies as the way we are to live. But why is it attractive as an answer? It's a right answer if God's real, but why is it attractive as a right answer? Well, if you have a given identity by God, that given identity, according to the gospel, is this identity, Christ's identity. It says in Matthew 3, when Jesus goes to be baptized, immediately he comes up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. It says in Mark that they were, the heavens were ripped open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, God the Father says... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, good for Jesus. How does that matter for us? Look at another, the counterpart to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where Paul again continues to teach his people and he says, We don't regard anyone according to the flesh. We can't judge, we can't see based on what we see who they really are, even though we once regarded Christ that way. We don't see him that way any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How do I do that? You don't. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's saying that God did it. Now, by faith, receive it. If you'll just receive it, you'll be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. An exchange takes place so that God takes your sin, puts it on Christ, that's why he had to go to the cross, then takes Christ's righteousness, the kind of righteousness that makes God look at Christ's baptism and say, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased, and he puts it on you. Do you see what that means for your identity? If you live in a world where you have to earn your identity, you'll be like me yesterday where I went mountain biking. Now, I am a man who is on a mountain bike. I am not a mountain biker. I went with mountain bikers. And we went up to a crest, the the crest ride. It's this very long ride, but it's mostly downhill, so, you know, I can keep going. And on this way down... I fell constantly. And these poor men were going with me and they knew me outside of the mountain biking world. So they were like being kind to me and trying to encourage me and trying to like decrease my total insecurity. 
by saying, even as I'm like wiping blood and dirt off of myself, like, oh man, you're doing really well there. You had a good line and yeah, you know, you overbalanced, but that happens to all of us. But what they're really saying is, you know, gee, howdy, maybe one day you'll be a mountain biker. And when I say dirt, at one point I hit a tree and flipped and landed and dirt went so far up my nose. I was trying to like pick it out, which is not an elegant process. I'm trying to like pull the dirt out and I keep riding and slowly the dirt goes down into my sinuses and I taste it in the back of my throat as I keep riding. There's a good reminder. Even as I kind of like felt like I was doing it for a second, I could still taste the dirt from when I face planted in front of these men who just knew exactly what they're doing. Now, to be a mountain biker... You have to have the equipment. You have to have the money. I was given that equipment. (laughs) But you have to have it. You have to have done it. And then you have to mountain bike. You have to do it a lot. You have to know the trails. And you have to know the skills. And you have to be able to put your bike in the right place. And you have to be fearless. And you have to have the scars. You have to have done the bad parts and the injury parts. And have the stories. And be able to walk into that group of mountain bikers and be accepted. Is that what we're saying that Christianity is? Do, purchase, work, pay your time, do your time at the low level and slowly increase. No. We're saying received. The illustration of a child is so beautiful. And yet, we have to take it along with all the other illustrations. Some people will take that illustration of a child and they'll put it by itself and say, well, this is literally true, meaning that we are literally God's children. And if that's true, all these other illustrations about us are just illustrations. Well, that's a little odd. I think you have to put them all together because it does say that we're his child, but it also says that we are his spouse. That one's a little weirder to take like super literally. And then it talks about us as like his servants. He's a king and he's sending us out as his knights to go and to accomplish and to kill dragons. The work of reconciliation that he's given to us. Calling us his child. Listen, to be fully known and fully loved comes from the idea of what God does with us. My neighbor across the street is just as tall as I am. I'm six foot six. This dude is also exactly six foot six. And it's fun. When we talk to each other, we can just look each other in the eye. It's great talking to him. He's a good-looking guy, real fit, young, and he just got engaged. We were talking out in the yard with each other. Oh, man, I'm so happy for you. Congratulations on this engagement. You're going to love being married. It's going to be great. And he said, oh, man, thanks. Yeah, I'm very excited, too. Uh, How long have you been married? I was like, oh, 10 years. It gets better as you go. And he went, Really? just an honest question from a guy who's looking down the barrel of like a long commitment and I said it gets better with time and he said really because you know like I said he's a good looking guy and he's just thinking he's seen older couples they don't get better looking (laughs) what's going to get better with time and I start trying to talk to him about, with Rachel and I and some of the counseling we received and different things, just influences the gospel has put into our world that God is showing us. Like, in a marriage, you can meet another person who will know you. And over time, continue to know you. Know you more and more and more. They'll watch you in different seasons and different issues. 
They'll know you. And knowing you, again, this is the ideal version, love you. It's not a shallow love that says, I love this image of you, this angle of you, this percentage of you. It's a love that knows you and actually loves you. When I'm right in the first service, my, my three-year-old came in for the very first time. She's never come to service before. And for some reason, she said she wanted to come to service. And Mom, uh, Rachel was doing something, working on something, and so she just sent Grace to me, and I walked her in here, and we sat here together. And Grace brings nothing to the table with a service. She's three years old. She's not going to help. In fact, the only thing she's going to do is not mess up the service. That's her best-case scenario, is that she doesn't spill something or yell or break something or color something really loud. Best case scenario. And I looked down at her at one point while Josh was up here leading and singing. And she looked up at me and she had this face of like, she's a little nervous, you know, she's in service, big service for the first time and mom's not there and he's just her and dad. And she looks up and you can see that little bit of insecurity and my, my heart just fills up. Fills up with my love for my daughter. Based on nothing that she's going to do. She's not going to give a bunch of money. <laughs> she's not going to come up and do some solo. Ooh, some solo and just blow everybody's minds. She's not going to preach. She's going to sit there and try to not mess things up. But I look at her as my daughter. and I love her. And then I thought about these verses. In Zephaniah, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He's going to quiet you by his love. He'll exalt over you with loud singing. Because he's your dad. Because you're his child. Because with you, he's well pleased. Think of that old man that's sitting there by himself as everybody leaves him. He's going to gather those of you who mourn for the festival. He's going to bring you into the party. He's going to put you right in the middle of the party. So that you'll no longer suffer reproach based on nothing that you've done, but just his exorbitant love. Now, that is not necessarily evidence that Christianity is true or that God's words are true or staple. But doesn't that make you want them to be true? My hope is that as you understand that his words are good, you'll keep taking the steps that you need to to evaluate whether or not they're true. And they are. It is the only way to have an identity that is impervious to a world that is constantly throwing storms at you. Because it's not based on you, it's based on what he has done and his words about you. And his words about you are both that you are a sinner and you are loved. So you can have a humble confidence. His words about you are that you have a meaning, that you are to be his ministers of reconciliation, going out into the world and reconciling people to people and people to God. You're to go and be his gardeners again in a much bigger garden, to be his fishermen, fishing not for fish, but for men. That is an identity that is stable and that is beautiful. It is to be fully known and fully loved. 
my prayer is that you will receive that. Whether you officially believe it, you've put that label on yourself as Christian, or you're still just skeptical and you're investigating it. You would just take this identity and understand and receive it. Lord God, and Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that your Holy Spirit would meet people where they are. That's what we need. We need you to meet us where we are. We need you to find us in our rebellion, in our brokenness, in our insecurity, in our loneliness, in our outsiderness. And we need you to bring us into that party. We need you to bring us into your presence, into your joy and the light of your presence. Not because we're good, but because you love us so much that you would send Christ to take our sin and give us his righteousness, making us that new creation. It's miraculous, Lord, and we're saying that it is true and that it is available. I pray that we would accept it and live in that truth now and forever. Holy name we pray. Amen.